Singing from the same hymnal, the naughty and nice list, and Yuletide cheer. Welcome. It's Money Talk, the Annex Wealth Management Show. Glad you're here. How much insurance do you need? Do you ever ask yourself that question? We are going to tackle that with one of the members from our financial planning team. Ask Annex is coming up with a shocking fact about the S&P 500. I didn't know, and it kind of broke my heart. That's on the way. Also, Dave, you've got a you've got a couple of teenagers. Uh, financial advice from social media. If your kids come in and go, "Hey, Dad, I saw such and such on TikTok." They 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 did, they did that to me today, actually. <laughs> okay, yeah. we're going to talk about that. Welcome. I'm Danny Clayton. Dave Spano is our president and CEO. Brian Jacobson is our chief economist. And where do we start, guys? Well, we start with uh, Brian brought in that big red suit. The Santa Claus rally is a real thing. Since 1950, the Dow and the S&P have averaged about 1.5% over all of that time. And this year did not disappoint. So far, the S&P is up 4.5%. And Danny talked about the naughty and nice list. Lots of that goes into what we're talking about. Oh, absolutely. And uh, keep in mind, the Santa Claus rally really begins on Christmas Day. I mean, technically, it would have to be the day after because there is no trading that takes place on Christmas Day. But it's really the 12 days of Christmas where Christmas is the first day going through Epiphany. So we've seen a little bit of the Santa Claus rally beginning as far as the anticipation of the gifts that Santa's going to bring. But a lot of times, actually, those gains historically have been during that somewhat quiet period that week between Christmas and New Year's uh, and actually technically Epiphany. And talk about the fact that there is low volume and when it moves on low volume that could mean good things in January as that rally continues and why is this happening really right now? There's really a number of things. Positive economic news certainly is part of that. The slowing down of inflation and a dovish Fed all are lining up for a positive January as well. It does seem like it. If we look at the inflation data. So on Friday, we got the Fed's preferred measure, the personal consumption expenditure deflator. So that is their official target, 2% over the medium term. And that is actually on a three-month annualized basis running at close to the Fed's target at about 2%. Now, obviously, this is not mission accomplished for the Fed. Uh, It's a question of do you get there and then do you bounce off of it? But so far, it does look like the momentum is moving in the direction of inflation, continuing to move Lower, finding maybe a little bit of stability with the housing market now that mortgage rates have come down from above 8% to the high 6%. Still a far cry from where it was just a year ago, but that is some incremental marginal improvement, and maybe that will continue as we go into January. And one of those factors that we spend a lot of time looking at is the 10-year Treasury peaked at 4.99%. As we talk about it today, 3.85%. That is a substantial move. So right now, the fact is the market thinks that rates are going to come down, despite all of the Fed officials trying to walk that back this past week. Yeah, it was interesting listening to all the Fed officials coming out after Chair Powell's press conference and how they're like, you know what, it's premature to talk about rate cuts at this point. But and then they always started talking about rate cuts, about what conditions would be necessary and how. And I think this is really important that if they do cut, it's not to ease monetary 
policy. It's really to keep it more stable because the Fed is beginning to focus more on inflation adjusted yields. So if you take the nominal yield and subtract off inflation, they want to make sure that that's positive. It's still restrictive. But if inflation keeps moving lower, that real yield moves higher and monetary policy gets more restrictive. So the Fed might try to be a fast follower of inflation lower when it comes to rates. And that, in my opinion, is a very good thing for the outlook. It means that they're not going to be just sort of blissfully ignoring the inflation data, economic weakness. They're going to try to calibrate things to really stick the soft landing. You know, I always seem to uh, chuckle at sometimes these Fed officials because they're trying to walk it back. But the dot plot or the dart plot, as we like to call it, does suggest that they're going to see three, and this is 19 Fed governors saying that we expect three rate cuts in 2024 and as many as three in 2025. So it is a bit incongruent. It really is. And also, key thing here is that is like the median of all of them. The ones who are likely to vote in 2024, because at the first meeting in January, you get a new roster of people who vote on policy. They might actually have that more bias towards four, perhaps five cuts in 2024. And we're going to talk a little bit about the naughty and nice list coming up. And there's certainly a lot that happened in this year, Danny, that we want to focus on and really what people can expect next year. There's a lot of money on the sideline that could come back into the market. What Annex Wealth Management does is investment and retirement planning, tax planning and estate planning. Those four things. And we do it as a fee only fiduciary. That's right. There is a significant difference between financial advisors, and we want you to know the difference. We've got Annex Ignite, Annex Comprehensive Wealth, and Annex Private Client. We'll meet you right where you're at. You know what? We're glad you're catching our radio show, but remember, we're on demand wherever you need us. The Week in Review as a podcast at the top of the hour, wherever you get your podcasts, in the weekly Axiom newsletter. If you're not signed up for that, please do so. This is Money Talk, the Annex Wealth Management Show, Saturday, December 23rd. We're going to be right back on 620 WTMJ. We're back. I know it's a busy weekend, but think about one week from today, we're going to be doing our Money Talk year-end review show. It's always one of our favorites. We're going to look back. We're going to look forward. Bunch of great stuff. So that's a week from today. I'm Danny Clayton. Dr. Brian Jacobson, Chief Economist, Annex Wealth Management, is on the show today. So is Dave Spano, President and CEO. Thanks, Danny. Let's go back and forth with some naughty and nice. And uh, should we start with naughty? I see you do have some eggnog. I'm not sure what's in there, <laughs> but let's start with, with a naughty in the fact that Nike had its worst day in 26 years on Friday. Yeah, that was pretty incredible. Nike had a, a really bad quarter uh, as far as, you know, the, it, interesting, the profits were okay. It's just, it was the outlook that they gave was really, I think, somewhat sobering, uh, not to play on words too much, especially with the eggnog reference. But uh, <laughs> you look at not only Nike, what also happened with FedEx, General Mills. I think there's almost this theme through their earnings reports. All of them had a pretty bad week. They were on the naughty list, but it was really because they had been caught up in consumers tightening their belts a little bit, mm-hmm. right? And I think that's a key thing is consumers, they're well, not... with all of these weight loss uh, drugs, well. you're young, that's why they're tightening. <laughs> that's true. Yeah, they can get away with tightening their can. belts now. Yeah. That's right. They maybe have to punch in a new hole in their belt. But it is really, you know, you look at Nike, it was about the outlook. Consumers aren't really 
uh, splurging on those higher cost sneakers. So that's affecting their margins. Also issues as far as selling into China. Then with FedEx, they're caught up in how there's this cargo glut where during COVID, everybody was having something shipped to their home and now they just have excess capacity. And so that's affecting their margins. There's weakness in Europe and China. So it's their international shipping that's really taken a hit. And then with General Mills, what the CEO said is that consumers are demonstrating value-oriented behaviors, meaning that they're purchasing store brands instead of name brands. So let's talk about the nice and keep with that concept. Consumers are feeling nice. The consumer confidence has gone up. It has. Yeah, it's really been incredible to see how much consumer confidence has popped. And it's not just because people are kind of holding out hope for better days ahead. It's really been in that present conditions index where people are recognizing that incomes are actually growing on an inflation adjusted basis. We got confirmation of that from the Bureau of Economic Analysis on Friday when it showed that incomes, inflation adjusted for November, increased one half of a percent. Okay, year on year, they've, they're up probably something closer to about 2%. So that's quite healthy. Consumers are feeling better. Their number one concern does continue to be high prices. It's not politics. It's not anything else about like fear of losing jobs. It's really still about the high level of prices. Let's touch on something we usually stay away from, and that is politics, where Colorado is putting themselves right in the middle of the election series. And of course, we've seen this before where the Supreme Court had a weigh in. You'll recall the last time that happened. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. And I would put that on the naughty list as far as this point. Uh, we know 2024 is an election year. Colorado Supreme Court ruling that former President Trump can't appear on the ballot because of some 14th Amendment concerns. So it'll probably get an expedited review by the Supreme Court. It really does politicize it. And I mean, to be honest, both sides, no matter where you are on the issue on the aisle, it's going to gin up the base, you know, which, you know, maybe actually is going to get people to go to the polls. So that's good. We know that uh, voting voter turnout has been on a secular decline. So maybe it'll get people to show up to the polls a little bit sooner. And I was dragging in your law degree there for a second, (laughs) but let's go to the nice side and talk about really what's happening with OPEC. Yeah. So the Organization of Petroleum Exporting Countries, this cartel of 13 countries that they conspire against consumers, they want to keep uh, oil prices high. That's really what they're in the business of doing. They've been cutting back on production. Angola, they have been a member for 16 years. They decided that, you know what, we're not going to go along with this anymore. Now, Angola is not a big player in OPEC. They only do like a million barrels a day. But still, I think it's kind of interesting that they decided that we're not going to go along with these production cuts because we want to make money. We want to increase our production. And we have a lot more, but we're running out of time here today. But earnings season coming up in January, we expect that to happen. And remember, folks, a lot of money is sitting on the sidelines. If earnings are better than expected, some of that money could come back in and extend the rally. I didn't know we were supposed to wait till the end of the show. There's definitely brandy in this eggnog. <laughs> <laughs> all right, all right. Hey, folks, it's an often asked question. How much insurance do I need? We've got the team to answer that question, and we'll talk to one of them next. This is Money Talk the Annex Wealth Management Show on 620 WTMJ. Know the difference with Annex Wealth Management, joined by Eric Strom, Financial Planning Manager, CFP at Annex Wealth Management. Welcome back. Thanks, Danny. It's an age-old question. How much life insurance does one need? That's what we're going to explore here. Are you ready to rock on this one? I am. There we go. First question might be the toughest. Is there a correct answer to this question? Well, it's one of those questions like asking how many 
Christmas gifts should I buy for my kid, right? There's not a clear exact answer, but there's an acceptable range and there's a, a sweet spot. I nosed around on the internet and I found some stuff. In fact, I was inundated with solicitations for insurance, page after page after page of Google results. What I did find was a couple of rules of thumb I want to run by you. And the first is multiply your income by 10 to find out how much coverage you need. Yeah, this is a common rule of thumb. It's not a bad starting point. Think about this. A common reason to buy life insurance is for income replacement. And using myself as an example, I have a couple young kids, so definitely have a lot of life insurance on myself and my wife for replacing that income. But think about this. If you're younger, much younger, let's say you might need 12 or 15 times your income because you have many decades mm. of income in front of you. And also insurance is less expensive at that point, And your income trajectory might be higher, right? You, over the years, you might make more money if you're starting off just as a fresh graduate, for example. On the other hand, if you're closer to retirement and you've already built wealth, you may have less need than 10 times your income, or you may have no need at all. So that 10 times your income is a pretty good starting point. Also think about though, you've got parents who do not work, but still provide a lot of value. So having coverage on a parent who just works at home and is not making any income at all, but taking care of the kids, that is very important as well. Yeah. Mary Poppins is not cheap, right? Somebody watching the kids, right? That's right. How much insurance do you need? Rule of thumb number two, 10 times your income plus $100,000 per child for college. How about that? Well, it's better, right? Because we're starting to consider more of those details. But let's say, for example, your kids are already in college and maybe you're in your early 50s. A lot of families in that situation, we see kind of that need shifting away from life insurance and even also disability insurance, right? Because you've got less working years ahead of you that you need to protect with coverage. So yeah, that's a little bit better of a rule of thumb. Eric Strom, financial planning manager at Annex Wealth Management and a husband and a father. And I'm sure he's thought more about this question than most of us. How much life insurance do I need? Rule of thumb number three is what is called the dime formula. Can you break that down? Yeah, dime. So your debt, your income replacement, which we talked about, your M for mortgage and E for education, which is that college expense. This is probably my favorite rule of thumb because you are accounting for those most common large expenses that you would use life insurance. And with this rule, you are more likely to get enough coverage because remember term life insurance, for example, is very, very affordable. Term life insurance is great for those of us who are building wealth efficiently outside of life insurance in accounts such as, for example, a Roth IRA or retirement plans through work. And so that is good because if you use that dime formula, you can get a little bit more granular with your need. And on top of that income replacement, maybe you use 10 times your income there, but you're adding in those other debts and mortgages and college expenses as well. And since the coverage is so affordable for many people to get that pure term risk coverage, then a formula like Dime is a pretty good way to go. There you go. Those are three decent rules of thumb to get you thinking. But when it comes to serious financial planning, Eric and the rest of the financial planning team dig in deep. They work the numbers, things that you might not be thinking about. It's what we do for our clients at Annex Wealth Management, turning things around. And you kind of referenced it earlier. Is there a point when somebody doesn't need life insurance? Yeah. So going back to that dime formula, let's say you're in your mid fifties, for example, your mortgage balance is probably a little lower. Now time has gone by, you've paid it down somewhat, and you also have less working years ahead of you to protect for that 
I in dime, the income replacement. So especially if your net worth has grown over the years, hopefully you've been building that nest egg, you might actually be at the point where maybe you're self-insured in, in terms of that dime formula. So for that common reason, you may not need life insurance. I will put a caveat out there that there are many families out there who have unique reasons to buy life insurance. For example, business owners who may have a liquidity need if there was a death, real estate investors, same concept there, or higher net worth or ultra high net worth families sometimes use life insurance for various unique planning reasons as well. But setting those aside for many or most of us, when you're in your mid fifties, we do see that need in general start to shift away from life insurance and more towards long-term care insurance, which is a risk that many families are facing in the retirement years. And Eric, assessing our clients' life insurance, it's what we do. It is. We're always trying to assess the risk of life insurance or a disability or a long-term care health event. These are very important risks and a financial plan allows you to assess your need to actually, do I need to buy any of this type of insurance? Eric Strom, financial planning manager at Annex Wealth Management. Thanks for your insight. Thanks, Danny. Locations? Well, we've got a bunch. Our headquarters soon to move in Brookfield, so keep an ear out on that. Also, Lake Country, Mequon, Appleton, downtown Milwaukee inside the Fister, Madison, Naples, Florida, Libertyville, Illinois, or as close as your computer. It is bottom of the hour on Saturday the 23rd. Time to get caught up, and for that, we go to the WTMJ Breaking News Center. Time for Ask Annex and in the studio, Fred Coleman, CFP, Wealth Manager. Welcome. Thank you, Danny. And we got Matt Morsey, Investment Team Manager, CFP. Welcome to you. Hey, Danny. Question number one. I'm 60 years old, want to learn more about the pros and cons of using a reverse mortgage to do a purchase of a new home. Are you able to give me any advice on this? Yeah. So first off, you do have to be 62 to use a reverse mortgage. And typically, you're going to need a significant amount of equity in your existing home. There's really one pro to it. You get increased cash flow because you don't have any mortgage payment. Now, there are a lot of cons as well that go along with not having that payment. First off, reverse mortgages, they're not free. They're going to be origination costs. They're going to usually come with higher interest rates. And then the thing that some people don't account for is that you still have to pay taxes, homeowners insurance, and HOA fees. So if you're used to paying that within the mortgage payment, it can be a little bit of an adjustment. Also, it's a fairly complex financial instrument, so you want to be very careful when you're being offered these reverse mortgages because there are a lot of scams and bad actors that target our senior citizens with these types of offers. Question number two on Ask Annex. As interest rates rose, I moved more money to our high-yield savings account. What are signs I should look for to put that money back to work in equities? Yeah, it's a great question and one that we talk a lot about here, you know, at Annex with our client portfolios and, and the money that our clients have outside of Annex as well, too. Ultimately, to me, it comes down to what is the purpose or the goal of those funds? Was that money that was sitting in the bank, but you knew you'd want to get invested at some point? Was it money you took out of the market and now you're trying to work it back in? But I'd want to know what the goal of that is. For the sake of this conversation, let's assume you wanted to get that all into equities. What I would do is I would try to stay away from trying to time, which is really kind of where that question's coming from is, how should I know how to time that to get that back in? And, and I would really be looking to essentially spread that money over a set of period of time, almost like dollar cost averaging. Think about how long you want to take. Is it six months? Is it a year? Which should really depend on how much cash that is, especially in comparison to your overall portfolio. Then pick that and just kind of do it evenly. So if you're going to do it over a year, divide it by 12 and do a little bit every month. If you really do want to try to time it or you want to be a little bit more specific with that, what I would do is 
have that as your initial goal. But if the market starts pulling back, you know, maybe it comes back 5%, then I would speed it up and I would do the next month's investment right away. Market starts pulling back even further, great. I would speed it up again and set another month, put it in there. So you're kind of doing both, but ultimately it's what are you trying to achieve? We always talk about timing the market. It's a fool's errand. You know, if you took that money out of equities before, we're at all time highs as we're recording this right now. So you probably missed out on that. I wouldn't want to wait for a gigantic pullback to try to put it back in because you might not get it. Participating in the market is, you know, usually the better option. You can look at, you know, November, for example. That was one of the Mm -hmm. greatest months in the history of the stock market. And if you missed out on that, then you missed out on a lot of potential long-term return. It's Ask Annex. Got a question? You head to our website, AnnexWealth.com. Look for the Ask tab. We can help, and I know we can. You just click that Get Started button. Question number three. Does it matter if an equity moves to a new index and then he mentions a fairly major company mm-hmm. that did move to the S&P 500. Does this somehow legitimize it? It does, but generally for a short time period. You know, if you're thinking about, is it the stock going to pop because now it's going to go in that index? Generally, right away it will because you have a, a whole brand new set of buyers that are going to be going in and need to add it. So, for instance, a company needs gets added to the S&P 500. You're going to have a bunch of ETFs and mutual funds that track that index that are going to have to go buy it now because it didn't hold it before, but they need to have it in there by the time that is calculated as part of that industry. But what you tend to see is that that momentum or the publicity around that tends to fade, and now it's just one out of the 500-odd companies that are there. And people forget. Not everybody knows what all companies are in there. In fact, there's actually 503 in the S&P right now, S&P 500 right now, so it's not exactly 500. But people tend to forget a lot about what companies are in there. So that big pop happens right away. You generally see over time though that kind of goes away. And then it's just trading as its own company. And what it's going to do is what it's going to do. You're about to tell me the Big Ten is not 10 teams. (laughs) (laughs) Same thing, Fred. Did you have a thought on that? I think it says more about the actual company than the stock. I mean, to say you're one of the 500 largest companies, that's a sign of the company's maturity. Uh, But the companies in the S&P, you know, change all the time as well. So if you go back 20, 30 years, you know, hardly any of those companies that were in there before are still in there now. Is this like English soccer? Do you get relegated? Uh, you certainly do. There's metrics. So all these indices have the rules in terms of what companies are going to be in there. So for instance, the S&P 500 also has profitability metrics that that company needs to maintain. One real famous one going back over the last couple of years was was Tesla. And Tesla, although it was one of the largest companies in the world from a market cap standpoint, had to achieve so many quarters in a row of profitability before it could even be considered to be included. So they're one that had a gigantic run up because people, you could tell what the financial statements look like and where they're going to be. So people were just waiting for that. But yeah, there's certain metrics in some of them. Other indices are just kind of blanket indices and they could just be in there. So there's not as much publicity or the up and down there, but some of them do have certain metrics you want to watch out for. Matt Morrissey, Investment Team Manager, thanks. Thank you. Fred Coleman, CFP, Wealth Manager, Annex Wealth Management, thank you. Thanks, Danny. We are one source of investment advice, and we do it as a fee-only fiduciary. What about the advice you see on social media sites like TikTok and Instagram? We're going to take a break and talk about it, including the dangers, next. This is Money Talk, the Annex Wealth Management Show on 620 WTMJ. Know the difference with Annex Wealth Management? Ryan Van Blarkham is a wealth manager at Annex Wealth Management. Welcome to the show. Hey, Danny. Thanks for having me. One-third of adults under 30 regularly scroll TikTok for news. That's a 255% increase since 2020. 
the TikTok increase is taking place across all age demographics, mm-hmm. though not just younger Americans. In fact, recent Forbes advisor survey found 79% of members from millennial and Gen Z generations have gotten financial advice mm-hmm. from social media. Apologize up front, Ryan. I, I chose you for this segment because I assumed you were a TikTok user. You are not. I am not. And it's funny because you know, when I hear that, it brings me back to when my siblings and I were kids. My dad would sarcastically say, you should believe everything you read on the internet. Well, you know, now, years later, we as a society have really adopted the digital platform as our main source to get all those forms and news updates and things like that. To your question, though, I, I disagree with that. You know, what's the old saying? If everyone else jumped off a bridge, would you? Now, I'm not implying that investing in stocks or bonds is like jumping off a bridge. However, I believe that same principle applies here. When you are investing, it's important to understand a few things. What's your time horizon? How long until you need those funds? Is it six months, one year, five years, 10 years? This is a major component for how you should have your funds allocated if even invested at all. Next would be what's your risk tolerance versus risk capacities. Essentially, what are you comfortable with versus what makes the most sense? Not everyone has the same attitude towards risk, and it's another reason why no one should immediately assume those investments are right for them. And then finally, what are your liquidity needs? Do you have ample emergency funds that would be three to six months of non-discretionary money? That's important because what if you get sick? What if you lost your job? Are you able to pay for basic necessities? When you start to ask these questions, you start to poke holes in that line of thinking, showing that not every investment is a perfect match for each individual. So I got a list of various investing and financial planning advice that comes from social media. Curious to see what you think based on your training, your experience. First advice somebody might see on TikTok or some other form of social media, invest in the same stocks as the rich and famous. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the biggest takeaway when looking to mimic the past is that past performance does not guarantee future results, period. There are no ifs, ands, or buts about it. Even if historically the investments that John Doe, for example, had picked did very well, that does not mean those same companies will meet the same expectations moving forward. I was actually reading an article that said the average TikTok video was roughly 38 seconds. Now imagine you have, whether it's your retirement funds, fund money, or just some other form of discretionary money, to make investment altering decisions based off a 38 second video, to me personally, does not seem like a good idea. I would highly encourage others to do their own research outside of TikTok or work with a financial professional such as Annex. Ryan Van Blarkham is a wealth manager at Annex Wealth Management, wiser than most. He stays off TikTok. We're talking about the increase in people using social media for investment and retirement planning advice. Another thing you're going to run across on social media is the way to, quote, get rich Mm -hmm. quick. (laughs) This one especially concerns me because, quite honestly, you see these kinds of schemes all over the place. I'm sure we've all seen the ads for, if you take this pill, you'll lose five pounds in a week. You know, that sounds great, but It's not always the case. I may not have TikTok, but I am familiar with it to understand that videos like this like to oversimplify the value of hard work and perseverance. Building wealth is all about doing the little things time and time again. It's taking that 1% of your raise each year and using it to increase your 401k contributions or understanding wants versus needs when we're shopping online. Where this becomes so difficult and why I feel people tend to fall victim to these get-rich-quick schemes so easily is that spending money has never been more convenient than it is today. We've all been there. You're on Amazon, you just bought something for 20 or 30 bucks and you say to yourself, did I really need that? Was that a want or need? You develop buyer's remorse. Where this ties together is that when we get in the habit of spending money on miscellaneous items, we feel like we're strapped for cash and then turn to those get rich quick schemes, as you mentioned, in hopes of getting out of that vicious spending cycle. 
moral of the story, do the little things. And when you see some lucrative investments, we all like to remind people is if it seems too good to be true, then mm-hmm. it probably is. There's a couple more. They're incredibly unrealistic. I'll mm-hmm. just rattle them off. If you start an S corporation, you don't have to pay taxes. Mm-hmm. The Federal Reserve has a secret million dollar bank account for every American citizen. Anyone can teach themselves how to day trade and be successful at it. Buying into newer cryptocurrencies early will make you rich. This is the kind of stuff that you maybe as a parent or a grandparent have to combat because the younger generation is kind of falling for this. Mm -hmm. In fact, I just saw this thing. One of the TikTok latest trends is the silent depression. And they want to explain why Americans feel so bad about financial standing, even though we're in pretty good shape, housing, transportation, food, increasing share of Americans take home pay. But economists say that doesn't make any sense at all. Mm -hmm. So Ryan, our bottom line advice from social media, what are you saying? Bottom line, I would say perform your due diligence. Take the time to gather information from multiple sources, you know, not just TikTok. Truly understand the kind of investments you're getting yourself into and the potential ramifications of them. You know, next would be credible sources. Any person can put a video on TikTok talking about the investment market and say they're a money expert or budget specialist. You know, speak with a fee-only fiduciary like Annex who deals with these kinds of things every single day. And then finally, do the little things consistently. Try to increase your 401k contributions annually. You know, max that Roth IRA or build up that emergency fund. There are no shortcuts when it comes to success. Ryan Van Blarkham, Wealth Manager at Annex Wealth Management. Thanks. Thanks for having me, Danny. This is Money Talk, the Annex Wealth Management Show, 620 WTMJ. We're back. A couple of reminders. Number one, this show available as a podcast at the top of the hour. Number two, one week from today, it's the Money Talk year-end review show. It's always one of our favorites. Hope you can join us for that. I'm Danny Clayton. Dr. Brian Jacobson, our chief economist, is in the studio. So is Dave Spano. He is our president and CEO. You know, Danny, as we get together with family and we've exhausted all of the conversations (laughs) about the local sports teams, right? We know we don't want to talk about religion and politics. Maybe you do. But you certainly can talk about the economics and what has happened. And there has been a lot that has happened in 2023. Yeah, 2023 seems like it has taken... eternity to get through, really. I mean, just everything that has been crammed into it. When I think back as far as how we started the year, especially with the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank, I think that was you know very notable, but it feels like an eternity ago. You had the collapse of that bank. You had First Republic being acquired by uh, J.P. Morgan. So real concerns about the financial system. Those concerns aren't completely gone, but they have really, really been managed well by the FDIC and by the Federal Reserve. So, I mean, you know, that's how we started the year. And then I think some people have forgotten about how all the political chaos, too, Mm -hmm. as far as with how long did it take to elect uh, Kevin McCarthy to be the Speaker of the House. And then he was the first one to actually be let go of that position as well in history. So it's a good thing you shorted Kevin McCarthy and you went long (laughs) Taylor Swift. Well, yeah. yeah. That was a nice play. Yeah, actually, I think that was uh, around in March where the Taylor Swift... uh, uh, tour took place. Uh, that was around about the same time that people were worried about Silicon Valley Bank. And man, she did have a huge effect yeah, on the economy. There's no question, right? Because all of the kids that went out, or kids, everybody who went yeah. out to went to the show and went to the theater. I mean, there's no question she had an economic impact. And let's talk about really what's happened with interest rates. And I know we talk a lot about the Federal Reserve, but interest rates go into valuation, not only for stocks, not only for bonds, but for all pricing mechanisms. And of course, if you're going to go borrow some mm-hmm. money, 
that's part of this conversation as well. That's right. And that's one of the things that we really saw in 2023 was the effect of how a lot of people were able to lock in low mortgage rates in the 2020 to 2022 period. And so they took their homes off the market. You know, it really did suck a lot of inventory out of the existing home sales market. That was a good thing for home builders. Home builders really like that because if you can't buy a, a used home, an existing home, you have to shift to a new home. And so that's been one of the interesting dynamics. And this people year. aren't doing that. I mean, if you if you are in a mortgage at three or 4%, they're saying I'm staying put. Yes. Right. And so that's the reason why you see a supply issue as well. So the demand is there. Supply is not. But you talk about what's happening and you saw some economic reports from home builders that are pretty excited about 2024. That's right. So the National Association of Home Builders, they have their sentiment index and it does show that home builders are getting a little bit more optimistic about the outlook. It's not necessarily that they think that near term things are looking great. It's they believe six months from now, things are going to be looking a lot better. And if you think about how the big story coming out of COVID, the construction costs, lumber prices, all of that has come down. But sadly, as those prices came down, mortgage rates went up. And so it was almost like they got a benefit on the one side, but then they got slapped in the face with the other hand as far as what was going on in the economy. And maybe within the next six months, they're going to get a little bit better traction because lower costs. And then if mortgage rates stabilize or continue to drift a little bit lower, that should really help existing home sales and the new home sales market. Yeah, and that's a lot of positive stuff. And of course, folks, this will continue to work against the wall of worry, all of the concerns that are happening in most recently with the Red Sea attacks, all of that is happening that does cause dislocation in pricing, which argues for a balanced portfolio. It really does. You think about what did well and what did not in 2023. You have the NASDAQ up more than 40%, practically 50%. But then you have utility stocks. Those are down about eight and a half percent. There's this huge gap between the winners and the losers and how good are you going to be as far as flipping from one to the other especially in the short term that's why it really does pay to kind of know what you own know why you own it what you're paying and also hold it for the long term Dr. Brian Jacobson, Chief Economist at Annex Wealth Management, thank you. Thank you. Dave Spano, President and CEO, thank you. Thank you, enjoy. Holidays are here folks. Hopefully you're going to be with the ones you love. Are you ready for what's next? For you, for sure, but for them as well. Let's put a plan in place together, not just for next year, but every year after that. AnnexWealth.com is the place. We're ready as a fee-only fiduciary partner. Just click that Get Started button at AnnexWealth.com. We'll be back here next Saturday at 10 a.m. Happy holidays. It's Money Talk, the Annex Wealth Management Show on 620 WTMJ.